0: 자 이제 내가 너의 하루를 얘기해 볼게. 너 매일 아침 누군가를 재촉하며 일어나지 어? 빨리 빨리 늦는다 말이야. 어? 늦으면.
1: You're listening to WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at wvew.org. And that was Lang Lee that you were just listening to. She is an artist and folk musician from Seoul, South Korea. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio every Sunday at 1 p.m. We also replay on Mondays at 2 p.m. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio, Instagram, and on Twitter our shows are recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program of those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. And today I'm going to air an interview I did with Jeff Noh, a visiting professor at Clark University, and you will hear a couple other songs from the South Korean folk artist Lang Lee within this hour. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are spending the hour with Jeff Noe. Jeff is currently a visiting assistant professor at Clark University in Worcester, Mass., in the English department, and specifically teaching U.S. multi-ethnic and Asian-American literature, and is also a writer. Uh, Jeff is in the midst of writing a novel. So, Jeff, welcome to Indigo Radio.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I I just moved to Worcester, Massachusetts from uh, Canada, uh, from Montreal, uh, where I've lived for a really long time, uh, working on my PhD in American literature. But I I, I think my kind of longer life history is a little more complicated or you know tangled in that. My family moved around a lot when I was growing up. I was born in South Korea in 1987. Uh, My family left for the states uh, where I grew up on the East Coast for a number of years. We moved back to Korea in the late 90s. Ended up moving to Canada. Um, In nineteen ninety nine, and so yeah, so I had this kind of like uh, transnational childhood, and I somehow ended up working on American literature, and uh, in parallel to that, I've I've been at work on a novel uh, um, that I hope is close to completion, and that I had a chance to read from uh, last week, yeah, at at Clark. So yeah, I I teach uh, you know American literature, especially in the postwar period, comparative race and ethnicity uh, formation, and uh, you know have an interest in creative writing as a writer.
1: And I was lucky to attend your reading last week because I'm of course here at Clark with you and one of the things that immediately stood out was one of the things you said at the very beginning. You said that in your writing you attempt to answer this question how did I get here and so I was wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about what you mean by that.
2: Yeah how did I get here? I think at the reading I introduced the project as saying that yeah I'm trying to answer this question of how did I get here and explain in in fiction, you know, why that question is complicated or challenging. (laughs) I think you might've heard like a second ago, like while I was like recounting my life story, I was doing this a little bit. Yeah. I'm just like, I kind of, I think work and think from a place of like disorientation, you know, trying to figure out how, how I got to, you know, where I am. And yeah, think about that in terms of like what I was saying in the fiction there. That, that, that particular question, like, I learned to ask, you know, in relation to my writing from uh, a teacher of mine, um, Gail Scott, who is a Montreal-based uh, experimental uh, writer. So I first heard that question in, in French as uh, do on a cri. So, like, you know, where does one write from? And this is a question that... So so Gail comes from uh, a queer feminist kind of radical, uh, you know, writing world, uh, francophone writing world um, in, in, in Montreal. And that particular question kind of you know, gets to the question of where one writes from, you know, in a literal place and also kind of in a political sense. What I've really learned from Gail was like uh, her using that question to think about Canada's settler colonial kind of history. I think especially in Canada and, and in Montreal, there's a sense of like, you know, accidental arrival or something like that. But unless you're from one of the indigenous communities that were originally from, you know, Montreal, or anywhere in Canada, you know, you've kind of arrived there via some kind of path or um, history, right, that was at some point erased. And so for a long time, like as I was living in Montreal, I thought of my life as having been kind of accidental, or that it kind of had no meaning. But I think, you know, through studying through Gale and thinking about like especially uh, fiction and the powers of fiction to tell stories, yeah, I got to this question of like, you know, how did I get here in the sense of, like, how did I arrive here literally, you know, from Korea? You know, it seems like totally accidental. Um, the, you know, my path of arrival isn't that unusual, I think, you know, for, for anyone living in, in Montreal. So, yeah, that's kind of, yeah. you know, what I was trying to get to. Yeah.
1: That's interesting, this term, this accidental arrival, because I would agree with you. I think it, of course, nothing is around that is accidental. There's historical and global forces that landed your family there. Yeah. And I think that it, about any of us, too. And, and I feel like it's a really important thing to understand, because when we say, oh, accidental, or it's just like, this just happened,
3: yeah.
1: um, it like dislodges us from history. Yeah. And I know I was talking to you this well, in our email communications about how I really like think about us as historical beings, and I try to mm-hmm. have my students think about that also. And it's something in me read listening to you and then reading some of your writing is something that I really really got and so i was wondering if is to you if you could explain the importance of historicizing ourselves
2: yeah that's uh that's like what a what a great question um and a big question yeah i really i also you know share this kind of um belief that kind of being able to locate oneself in history and kind of big forces allows us to find um agency kind of in our lives whenever i just like think about like you know the story of my life and even just like the dates that are involved there are like moments right where the story of you know me and my, and my family were really kind of directly shaped you know by history that i wasn't really aware of until i think um you know quite recently when i started reading about um, the history of the korean peninsula as an adult in an indirect way i think that's kind of what i'm trying to do with my fiction Um, I was born in, you know, 1987, which is the year of the first uh, free and democratic election in in South Korea, which is something that I didn't know at all growing up, even though, you know, I was born there and I, you know, I went to school like partially in in Korea. So part of the part of my life that feels totally accidental is right, like, yeah, like I moved around so much, I couldn't really find a place, uh, uh, you know, to call home, you know, I think this is like a common way that immigrants kind of narrate their stories. But like on the flip side is that it's, it's not totally random and that there were these things that were kind of nudging us along that we can think about, you know, in terms of the political meaning of our of our world. You know, the fact that uh, my family left Korea for the second time in the, in the 1990s, you know, that was, you know, again, like a pivotal kind of moment in the Korean diaspora. Um, the financial crisis that was kind of uh, affecting a lot of different places in Asia, like drove waves of migration, um, you know, to uh, across the global north. And, yeah, I'm just, like, really fascinated by this idea that in my day-to-day life, my life feels totally accidental or kind of meaningless, but when I look back, it kind of fits this bigger shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Right, and I think that that could be applied to all of us, Or and I think that we here at Indigo, um, we're all educators, as I said, and I think as educators, to me, history is so important because I think that we are all robbed of our history.
3: Yeah.
1: And or the true history is what I would say, and that as teachers we really strive to bring the truth to our mm. students and have them be co-investigators with us about what is the history and what are these like greater shapes that shape our lives. Because one of the things I also think about is how we don't choose the historical moment that we're born into, mm, right? Yeah. And I think by, you use the word agency, I think that's, I like that, is that by, Uncovering it and learning it, it also I think can propel us to say, well, we are not just passive bystanders of life. Mm-hmm. There's also action that, that we can take to change things, and that may sound romantic or whatever. But yeah. if you look at the history, and we'll we're going to look at a little bit of the history of the Korean Peninsula, there is a lot of resistance. There is a whole history of resistance movements mm-hmm. throughout the world of people trying to make change. So, yeah. okay, I want to talk a little bit about South Korea, but I. Could you enlighten me? Um, I was telling Jeff before we started interviewing that no surprise, I didn't learn much about the Korean Peninsula in my uh, education. Can you tell me, is there a difference saying Republic of Korea versus South Korea, or is there one that you choose to say? Because I, I, yeah. the reason I'm asking is because they're from your readings.
2: You know, so I'm not a I'm not a Korean historian by any means. So what I know of Korean history. You know, I think of my work and just like understanding myself, and thinking about what kind of things I can explore in my creative work. So in my creative work, there was something that kept me from writing about Korea. I kept on coming back to it, but I just couldn't even put down the word Korea on the page. And so the Republic of K, which is the name that South Korea appears under, um, is this kind of fictional kind of detour that lets me talk about all these things that happened um, to Korean people that I'm kind of exploring in a, in a you know in a fictional way um, you know drawing from like familiar experiences and, and changing things so to me like the Republic of K the Republic of Korea is kind of the most estranged form in that like when I applied for a visa or when I you know I have to read my passport in Canada like whenever I'm asked where I was born I have to look through that long list and I have to I'm like is it under South Korea is it under you know um, the Republic of Korea And then there's you know obviously the question of like um north korea right the democratic people's republic of korea so yeah like i think i think that's why i I am like interested in this yeah in this formulation of the republic of korea um informally i know that like a lot of south koreans call south korea korea there's no like modification and uh, that's something that's quite interesting to me you know because the history of the korean people like you know across the world isn't just isn't just um, um south korea right and it's also not just the people on the peninsula but you know it's kind of a global kind of question
1: mm-hmm. yeah okay so i
2: don't know if that answers your question No, that's, that's yeah helpful. I,
1: I wanted to ask about u.s involvement a little bit for our, our listeners here u.s involvement in korea and i in prepping for this was reading how Missionaries, U.S. missionaries Mm. within the Korean Peninsula dates back to the 1880s. Could you talk a little bit about the U.S. interests or motivation for the division of the Korean Peninsula?
2: Yeah, so this is the story of the Cold War. The Korean War was the first so-called, you know, hot war. The way I think about the Cold War, I don't think it's really possible to, you know, be someone of, um, you know, any Korean descent and not have um, the war um, have, like, shaped right? Or, or not shaped, but directed or nudged, you know, your, your family's histories. You know, I think certainly like going back the generations in my family, there's, you know, so much like division and separation um, that happened out of, the, out of the war. Looking at it from like the outside, you know, I think one um, narrative uh, that people use to tell the story of the Korean War is that it's like a proxy war between um, the Soviet Union and um, the United States, yeah, between you know, in, in kind of the Cold War frame between, like, communism and um, capitalism. And that story never quite made sense to me, you know, because, like, South Korea and North Korea didn't exist as entities before the war. That was kind of like a, a thing that was imposed um, during the war. And, you know, I, I think kind of the flip side to this, to go back to, like, the amazing things you were saying earlier about trying to think about the connection between uh, protests and resistance and agency on the one hand and like bigger, big picture things on the other. There were also kind of uh, people like living on the peninsula, right? Who had to kind of each figure out how to live, right? With the consequences of of the Korean War. And I think for South Korea and for South Korea, and just I can only really speak to to my family, you know, no one in my family can really think about um, our lives separated from the question of like the United States. So my grandfather, was like a huge, you know, uh, he loved like American culture. He was a big, you know, fan of like you know American movies and and music and things like this. My dad learned um, how to speak English during his compulsory uh, military service, which I think you know related to um, how my family ended up in the U. S. Like through his work. Yeah, and 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 obviously, kind of um, the question of U. S. Presence in Korea also kind of extends beyond. Personal, you know, things like there are still military bases in Korea. Um, I was looking that up.
1: There's fifteen, is what I I, the number I saw. Yeah. You know, as someone who's done a lot around U.S. militarism, there's over 800 military bases around the world, Mm and so I didn't know how many there was in in South Korea, so I was looking it up, and yeah, fifteen military bases.
2: Oh yeah. So I mean, I think I think I think it's hard to be uh, a someone who's lived right in in South Korea and you know, not, not have been, you know, influenced in some
1: way by the bigger story of, you know, the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also speaking to of the, that I had seen that uh, South Korea sometimes is called this client state or neo-colony of the U.S. And I, Mm -hmm. I came to find out too that the that South Korea is a huge purchaser of U.S. arms, and U.S. arms, of course, are—I mean—they're the biggest arms traders in the world. And so I thought that was also interesting too about the, the just those military connections too mm. between U.S. and South Korea. The other thing too, and just listening to you talk, I think reiterates it for me is that you hear this set of the the Korean War, the Forgotten War, mm-hmm. and I was thinking how honestly offensive and brutal that title is because of the, I mean, just listening to sort of your family history and then thinking about how the amount of dis- displacement and death yeah. and that that surely is not a, a forgotten war <clears throat> for many, many people. So who decides that it's a forgotten war? Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I, I think something like 4 million people died on the peninsula um, during during the war. Yeah, yeah. So it was really like a devastating, you know, war. Because like I think even, you know, when, when I say Cold War, it feels like it feels like it wasn't that violent. Uh, yeah, right. Th- that's not part of the associations. How we label this. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, for sure. Like a really, you know, brutal and devastating, you know, event that, you know, forever changed the peninsula. And I think about like, you know, the Forgotten War is interesting to me too, because part of my experience growing up and like moving around North America and, you know, going back to Korea is like, a, you know, on some level, like I too have kind of forgotten, you know? So like a lot of the way that I think about Korean history these are things that I kind of learned through books, you know, as an adult, even though it's there in my, it's, it's really close to my family history. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think there's something there in it being forgotten in that I didn't really learn much about the Korean War in school in, in the U.S. or Canada. Like in Canada, um, it would only touch on like, so the Korean War would appear in flashes when people would talk about like the veterans who, who fought, you know, in, in the Korean War But I was never quite able to kind of locate myself, you know, in in, in that story. History is like actively constructed, right? And I think the process of forgetting, you know, is also something that's actively constructed.
1: And many people say the United States of amnesia, right? When talking about the, I feel like, disservice that we get through a lot of our textbooks. Because I would agree with you, too, around... There's so much history around the United States. And then my family is Australian. So I moved to mm. I moved to the States when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Australian history I don't know. And I've had to relearn a lot of that. And luckily, I think when we do make that maybe like critical turn, it's because there have been teachers or other people in our lives that have influenced that shift. Mm. Because the information is out there, but you have to seek it and have other people show it to you and say, no, there are other things written about this to uncover that history that is forgotten. The other thing I was thinking when you were talking about how easily it is to forget is that, uh, militarization and a militarized culture, I would say in the U S is so normalized. I mean, there has not been a time that we haven't been at war and there's so much uh, seeped into our education. I think that we here are the best democratic nation in the world, and so we're helping other countries. And that violence is obs- that violence from us is like so obscured yeah. and normalized yeah. and made to think, oh no, it's necessary. Uh, I mean, there's just another one right now happening that there's going to be possible U.S. intervention into Haiti. Mm-hmm and so it's it's constant it's and so that i think becomes makes it normalized and forgotten is what i would say too
0: 이른 아침 가난한 여인이 굶어 죽은 자식의 시체를 안고 가난한 사람들의 동네를 울며 지나간다
4: 이른 아침 가난한 여인이 굶어 죽은 자식의 시체를 안고 가난한 사람들의 동네를 울며 지나간다 부자들이 좋은 빵을 전부 사버린 걸 알게 된 사람들이 막대기와 갈 길을 들고 동문을 두드린다 배고픈 사람들은 들판에 콩을 주워 다 먹어 치우고 부자들의 곡물 창고를 습격했다. 이라고 걱정하고 노동하고 슬피우며 마음 깊이 웃지 못하는 예의 바른 사람들이 뛰기 시작했다.
1: and not because we'll be coming back to some of the other things around history. I uh, really enjoyed prepping for this interview because it brought together two of my things that I'm really passionate about. One is relearning for myself history and that I was an English literature major in college. So. It brings in my passion for reading fiction, and when I was going back and reading the excerpt that we're going to have you read in a minute, I felt so excited because I was like, ah, I wish I was actually in Jeff's class. And, and, you. you know, you don't often get to actually sit with an author. We're going to have you read an excerpt from Paris Syndrome. Could you set up a little bit about what you're going to read, and then we'll have you read that portion.
2: Yeah, of course. Sound good? Yeah. So okay. this this uh, appears. This is the last little part of the excerpt titled Paris Syndrome," which which came out in um, the Malahat Review, which is a great literary journal, um, one that I love, uh, based in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. To set up this excerpt, I would say that the novel, the novel uh, uh, has, has an unnamed, the, the unnamed narrator. Of the novel works at this research center, uh, or the Centre de Recherche in um, bilingual Montreal. Um, where he's at work on this long interminable project that involves historical research. And I hope you know, that maybe reflects some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of trying to locate oneself in history. More immediately, uh, the excerpt describes the colleagues of the narrator uh, you know, discovering kimchi, like making kimchi at home and enjoying it you know, because uh, uh, who doesn't, right? So let me read for you the excerpt from uh, Paris Syndrome. It is commonly argued that only those with the lived experience of a cuisine can truly experience its qualities and give an informed appraisal of its flavors. In this case, however, it was the very disinterestedness of my colleagues that allowed them to taste the complex dimensions of the kimchi that Garth Holbermann had produced, whereas I found the very thought of placing the contents of the ongi in my mouth unpleasant, experiencing perhaps a residue of the disgust that I could reconstruct now in the faces of the guests that came for dinner, their faces contorting an instant before returning to the awkward rhythms of conversation, pushing the plate away with a polite smile. This residue of disgust was not apparent with all fermentation as with the small peppers passed around the dinner table with the story of its procurement, the traveler having received them in a small glass jar as a token of friendship from a family relation who, as proof of the distinctively Italian ratio of the simple and the complex, might one day transform the small house that she had inherited from her gregarious father into a restaurant. She possessed the beauty and talent for it, one of us would say, that rare appetite for life itself, a commodity that was nearly extinct in this period of globalization. I sank into the depths of the Pacific as the plane carrying my family away from the peninsula passed above, my mother jolting me awake into the white noise of the cabin, the Italian daughter of the baker or the locksmith pouring in a different application showcased to us at the dinner party, the crushed grains of the small pepperoncini dried in the Mediterranean sun into the jar we were holding now using a paper funnel, evoking the impossible to replicate atmosphere of that fiction in all our minds that was Europe the last bastion of meaning from the encroaching terrains of the global, where O, like others, had claimed to be more at home, riding the train from country to country, stopping at the small restaurant owned by a charming Italian woman who had inherited a small villa from her difficult father who had worked for a long time as a baker or a locksmith. Although it was true, O said, that one had the option of purchasing similar goods in North America the experience wasn't the same. For it, wasn't, for it was in consuming these products in the more relaxed atmosphere of the European continent, where the interwoven layers of wind produce a uniquely relaxing breeze along the branches of trees in temperate summer, that one received the full effect, the missing piece that was between us, those tourists from the Orient that inevitably would end up in the margins of her photos, their presences tolerated as an afterthought to the flow of capital, those wriggling segments of lactobacillus in that national dish that Garth Holbermann had replicated. The process of fermentation, my colleague enjoyed informing us, was a competitive process among the microorganisms that fill the earth. And through the miracle of culture, he said, these beneficial bacteria would multiply and keep other harmful bacteria from entering. It was a process of maintaining purity encountered through the hand taste and mouth taste of this amateur of the tango and crunched by my moaning colleagues. As a sign of my sensitivity toward this superior mode of relaxation, I offered unsuccessfully my love for the extended lunch breaks in certain French novels that take place in the early 20th century, novels that with each line that I read, attempting to descend into the world contained in the page Seemed, seemed merely to exacerbate the problems of time and space that kept me from constructing the life I saw before me. I was exhibiting symptoms of Paris syndrome set to affect those Japanese tourists who on arriving in the cultural metropole were overcome with dizziness, nausea, and grief at the difference between the Paris of their imagination and the place that materialized beyond the windows of the tour bus the condition intensifying as the bus made its way through the arrondissement in succession, the vision of that city that was represented, no doubt, in the films and novels that O claimed to have led to her love of that city, white pages fluttering in climate-controlled air. I'm not a tourist, that ugly world, that ugly word, O often said about herself, or worse, an expatriate. I prefer to think of myself as a cultural migrant, an exile, a refugee from homogeneity. I, re- I followed this logic of substitution back to the Portuguese ships in the 16th century, the plundered capsaicin transported over the sea. The guests around the reproduction ongi beckoned me into the kitchen. I felt the forgotten disgust that I had retained from childhood rising inside me as my colleagues ascended into, an, into uncontaminated gastronomic pleasure. I was a fragment of residual space, a Japanese tourist fainting under the Turi Fell.
1: So I know that a reader, of course, is bringing in their own thoughts of what they think the author is doing. Yeah. <laughs> so and is they, the author. <laughs> and that they could be wrong. Yeah. So I, I just want to say that. But of course, that's maybe also the beauty of literature, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. And so yeah, I, I'm nerding out on my English lit days uh, as a college student. So one of the things I get from your writing, and is really interesting to me, that piece that you just read, all I can think about is globalization. Yeah. When you when you read it and when I've read it myself. Yeah. And the way that you bring in so many links, is there anything that you want to say about that?
2: Yeah, I think. I think I'm yeah I'm super interested in globalization in different ways that people think about it, and also globalization in kind of the long historical frame. I think maybe one way of talking about this concretely is I became interested in kimchi. You know this yeah this food item that's like emblematic in some ways of Korean culture, and I was really surprised to learn that kimchi itself is a relatively modern invention in Korea. In the sense that the peppers that were that, that are used, right, kochu uh, 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 and kochukaru and kochujang and all these like derivatives, um, only arrived after the Portuguese made contact with Japan, and so, like I, I was obsessed with this idea that like this thing that we think of as being super emblematic to Korea and distinctively Korean, and uniquely Korean, is connected um, to like all these. Uh, you know, this kind of the founding trauma of, like, colonization, the transatlantic slave trade, um, and things like this, and that there's some kind of connection between, you know, my life in the present in a really concrete way and and those kinds of longer-term, uh, bigger historical...
1: I didn't know that. That's, that's really helpful, and also I feel like reiterates the, the stuff that I was getting from your writing. I also got this thing where it seems like there's these kind of surface level like interactions. Like this character of Garth, really yeah. makes me chuckle sometimes. Like I can yeah. see the whole thing of them like eating this kimchi or like him trying to uh, apologize yeah. to you because he had said something culturally offensive to you. earlier. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's like, oh, I know, I know a Garth for sure. You know, I, I've probably been a Garth. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, yeah, who hasn't? Yeah. <laughs> Some of your details, it's almost like slid in. For instance, this UNESCO cultural heritage list. And if, as a reader, you then yourself dig in more. So I started looking up UNESCO and the the list. And there's this this place where where Garth is like talking about this list. I think that leads him to fermentation, wanting to try and make kimchi, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I then found out that, uh, which I didn't know, is that in 2011, the US stopped paying dues to UNESCO after UNESCO recognized Palestine as a state. Oh,
2: wow. Well, I didn't know
1: that. And yeah. so I just use that as an example of, like, mm. there's these things, like, um, in your writing, I think, in there that then can open up, like, a whole um, kind of investigation, I think, for the reader of, like, what is he talking about? Like, I don't know these historical things, so let me sort of, like, look more into mm-hmm. it. And the other thing, I just want to, I've done this before, I read uh, authors writing to themselves, but... (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, yeah, the
2: greatest honor, yeah.
1: There's this part that I think is really profound. Again, this character, Garth, for listeners out there. And the narrator here is describing interaction. So Garth had once explained to me, speaking of his family's ties to the Republic of K, when his grandfather flew over the peninsula... His plane, full of cargo, as my own grandparents, I imagined, wandered in the conflagrations of the labyrinth below, a topic which I never could broach with my own family. The senior Garth Holberman, whose name had been tarnished and rescued over the past year, adjusting his goggles in the oriental winds which blew down from Siberia, that bridged the European continent for which O had yearned. I love that part so much because it's like this, um, how we are connected to each other yeah. through this history, right? Yeah. I wanna to talk to you about, you have a, a number of books that you have your students read. One of them is this book by Eugene Lim, Dear Cyborgs. I'm wondering if you can just give a brief overview. There's also a Brattleboro reference in this book, oh, yeah. which is really exciting, because you're gonna read that to us. Yeah, so let's start there. If you give us a brief overview
2: so Eugene Lim's uh, *Dear Cyborgs*. Uh, this is yeah, Eugene Lim's third novel. The way I describe it is that yeah, it's it's, it's hard to really summarize. It's if you, if you look at it, it's like a, it's like this you know short novel um, that's told um, in in these fragments that are like super connected to each other in ways that might um, that are a little bit disorienting. Yeah, so like it's it's a novel about a lot of things. It's about um, political movements and uh, histories of resistance. Histories of like optation you know, of, of those resistance movements, and uh, the novel kind of narrates this story through stories of like artists trying to, you know, work within uh, the capitalist forces, right, of um, the art world, um, you know, superheroes, right, who are uh, pitted against each other, right, um, you know, who you know fight energy corporations um, and things like this. So you know, I it's it's just like really fascinating. Uh, multi-genre like experimental uh, narrative that touches on those topics in conjunction with asian-american like history and i find that connection really surprising and interesting and and eugene lim by the way is a korean-american writer this is a third novel yeah so that's that's a brief summary of of the novel oh and where does the brattleboro reference come in yeah um, so brattleboro's uh, a passing um uh reference Um, There are two artist characters in this book, Ursula and Dave, and they both attend um, an artist colony or an artist residency in Brattleboro. And that's where their kind of, you know, friendship begins. And yeah, I'm not quite, I mean, you know, I know that.
1: uh, It sounds like Brattleboro. Yeah,
2: yeah, they go to a, yeah. (laughs) yeah. So I think the way that Dave tells it is that they're the two, they're the two only non-white artists at this residency in Brattleboro. Okay. And, and this is the germ of like the friendship that continues in New York. Okay. Yeah.
1: I'm assuming Eugene Lim has been to Brattleboro. He's <laughs> yeah. a- able to so accurately describe yeah. it. <laughs> okay. I was reading, well, I, I saw the assignment that you gave your students, and your assignment led me to some links that okay, you've yeah. given your yeah. students. And one of them was a review of the book, because I have not read the book, but now, of course, I want to. So I'll add it to my list. But one of the reviews was talking about how, and you just said it yourself, the resistance and how resistance is essential in the world. This was the review. Mm -hmm. And then I also, you also had your students read this article about a labor activist Uh, Kim Jin-suk, am I saying that correct?
2: Uh, Kim Jin-suk.
1: Who is a welder. And so I was wondering, I mean, the fact that you put that link in, it says something to me that maybe you want your students to think about labor struggles or resistance. So could you tell us a little bit about her and what you think about teaching students about resistance and and if you think it's an essential things to be thinking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, I could, I could give like a super long-winded version of an answer to this. Yeah, so like I said, like it's, it's a novel that I, I really love and I've read it many, many times now and I'm always kind of discovering new things in it. And it's so multifaceted and the different parts like reference and kind of allegorize each other. Um, but I think the kind of central trauma that this book responds to was the the discovery that Richard Aoki, who I, I, I'm not sure if everyone knows about?
1: Yeah, tell us, because I'm not sure everyone knows about. Yeah, so
2: Richard Ioki. Richard Ioki was like uh, a political uh, um, figure, a political activist who's in this like image um, that ha- has had this kind of iconic life. So you know, in the famous image, Richard Aoki, uh, who's Japanese American, is holding a sign that says "Yellow Peril supports Black Power." And and it's a photo from the uh, from 1968. Um, the photograph has had this kind of iconic uh, status um, and its iconic uh, meaning in thinking about the solidarities uh, between the Black Power uh, movement and Asian American you know political history. And um, Richard Aoki died in 2009, and a couple years later it came out um, from a, a Freedom of Information Act request that Richard Aoki had been an FBI informant or that he he had been working for the FBI secretly kind of the whole time. And this novel like has this really kind of interesting fragmented, disconnected structure, but like all those fragments kind of revolve around this kind of traumatic discovery of what some might say was kind of um, the loss, right, of the power of that image. And the novel really contends with this question of like, what does it mean to be um, an Asian American, right, after this discovery? You know, how do we think about transracial solidarities? So the novel kind of responds to that big question. And I, I think it's really obsessed in thinking about, um, yes, there are histories of resistance. And especially in the 20th century and the 21st centuries, um, there have been also really sophisticated techniques to co-opt and contain and subvert those you know, resistance uh, movements from, uh, from uh, people, right? Um, and I think this novel kind of tries to think about what what happens after, right? How do you respond to that co-optation? And the novel like gives you know many different interesting kind of uh, solutions and answers, in- including kind of like this long list presented in this really long footnote of other kind of Asian American kind of political activists who are in- involved, you know not only in kind of uh, pivotal moments in Asian American history, but also with uh, the Second reconstruction and um, with the gay liberation movement and ACT UP you know in, in, in the later 20th century um, you know, as, lo- as well as the anti-Vietnam, third world liberation things that are typically kind of thought of as being um, the core of the Asian American movement. The novel begins with one of the characters going to the Occupy Wall Street protests at, uh, at Zuccotti Park in 2011 and it narrates this phone call that happened in real life between port city of Busan in South Korea in the fall of 2011 and Zuccotti Park and so in, in, in the fall of uh, uh, 2011 um, this you know welder and uh, labor activist um, Kim Jin-suk uh, went up a crane in Busan and, and, and for those of you kind of who know um, South Korea know that Busan plays this like pivotal uh, role in the South Korean economy in that it's kind of the nexus right of exports and imports and things like this, and so uh, Kim Jin Suk, um, she was up, living in, in this crane by herself, for 309 days as a way of uh, protesting uh, mass layoffs and other austerity kind of measures by uh, Hanjin, which is one of kind of uh, these uh, massive conglomerates, right, that have a lot of uh, political and economic power in South Korea. And in the novel, Kim Jin Suk is speaking into a phone. And there's a translator in Korea translating her speech into English and the translator is calling into Zuccotti Park to someone standing in the Occupy Wall Street protests. And through the people's microphone, so like this message that's translated and sent across the Pacific is chopped up and relayed across the park um, through uh, the people's microphone. And it's kind of this like really amazing moment that opens the book where we think about these surprising. Um, you know, inter or international kind of solidarities, you know, between, um, uh, you know, political movements, right? That kind of, you know, want to fight for uh, people who deserve, you know, better lives, right? Um, and yeah, this kind of gets to kind of a lot of things that we talked about, including, you know, this idea that like I certainly, even though I read a lot about Occupy Wall Street, I didn't know about this particular trans-Pacific connection but it kind of really made me think about, you know, um, the 2011 moment as being transnational and international. So yeah, that's that's kind of the Kim Jin Suk part of it, and I think by pulling out kind of these like surprising, you know, hidden fragments um, of resistance, Eugene Lim, I think that what this novel is trying to do is kind of suggest right that um, the story of like political activism and and struggle doesn't end with the state winning or like, you know, a containing or co-opting or uh, whatever, that if you look, right, uh, uh, history is kind of full of these kind of other moments, right, that show moments of, you know, powerful resistance. And, you know, that, that was sort of the idea uh, behind the assignment that I assigned my students, which is that the students are like supposed to choose from a selection of novels, and Eugene Lim is the most contemporary one, but it begins with Nella Larson's uh, passing, and Um, The students, like, pick a novel and they write their own preface kind of situating this book in relation to, like, contemporary kind of questions and also thinking about uh, uh, the connections between, like, you know, the present and the moment uh, that these novels were published. Um, Someone writing about Nella Larson will think about, like, this hundred-year kind of, you know, gap in history. Someone writing about Eugene Lim's Dear Cyborg will think about the five-year kind of gap, right, where a lot has happened, you know, Mm -hmm. in the last five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I love that. Thank you. That's... uh... I did not know about Kim Jin Sook, and I so I of course read that article, and I was so really inspired by that story. Which also I know that the she became a threat because she did inspire a lot of people, and she yeah, inspired yeah. a lot of workers. Yeah. and I think what you said around the transracial solidarities is so key and international solidaries mm. to see what are the, the patterns of mm. our lives and where do our lives connect. And I think students really need to see that because I always say it's so important for me to try and build solidarity even within my classroom amongst students. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah, I'm like, that's something that I think about a lot, too, because I, I, on the one hand, especially like my the students who are like coming into college, I'm like really moved and surprised by how much uh, passion they bring to kind of questions of racial equ- equity and justice. but I, i'm I'm also quite surprised to uh, you know find that they also kind of underestimate the kind of agency that they have, you know within these kind of political movements, like whether whatever their you know lived experiences or whether whatever their kind of uh, racial or kind of gender uh, uh, positions are. I, I think what we were talking about earlier about trying to think of them tra- trying to encourage people to kind of think about, their own lives, you know, and kind of their communities in like historical terms is, is really important. Yeah. And like the uh, identity of, you know, whiteness itself has a history, right? It's not kind of like this, you know, immutable kind of naturalized thing, but it's whiteness itself came out of this kind of multi-ethnic, you know, coalition that had like this political economic, you know, background.
1: Clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was the creation of whiteness. Yeah. And it, it's really important for students to understand that and learn that. Yeah. It's because a, yeah, nothing is not nothing is um, inevitable, yeah. or, and that's why going back to when we were first t- talking of like ourselves as historical beings, yeah. like, how do we understand that identity? Yeah. and that nothing is, is static. Also, going to student agency, the reading about um, these labor struggles. Uh, well, there's two quick things I want to say. Is that, the other thing going back to your writing and i think this is why i was like wow he really slides things in there is structural adjustment and it so that was in your writing that you mentioned like as a fleeting thing and the 1997 crash and then the i the imf coming in and Mm -hmm. so can you just talk could you talk a little bit about structural adjustment in south korea and the imf yeah and what that has what that does to a country
2: yeah so yeah, the Asian financial crisis in one thousand, nine hundred and ninety-seven, right, which kind of began with currency collapses in Indonesia and Thailand, and kind of spread to um, the other uh, nodes of the Asian capitalist system, is was kind of this like traumatic moment, like for me, because so my family had reju- like a couple of years ago just returned from the U.S. to Korea, and at a moment of like you know a financial crisis. And, you know, like I, like I said earlier, I'm kind of interested in thinking about these kinds of lost moments from my own memories and kind of trying to situate them in these larger moments, right, that kind of go beyond uh, just me and my family. So what happened after the uh, currency collapse and, and, and the financial crisis was that the IMF kind of imposed what are euphemistically called like uh, market, like marketization and like market friendly kind of, you know, transformations of the AA economy. Which kind of you know essentially meant that the kind of the logic of the market kind of you know um, had this kind of intensified uh, power over kind of across all these different dimensions of people's lives. Uh, The social security net right was like you know gutted. Um, Powerful corporations uh, like Hanjin and Samsung and like you know these companies that that Kim Jin Suk and other kind of labor activists kind of have been uh, uh, fighting against and advocating against right uh, you know consolidated all this power. Um, And so, yeah, like, I think the reason the term structural adjustment kind of reoccurs in my project and I'm so, like, um, moved that you'd kind of notice that pattern was, yeah, like, my attempt to try and think about how it affects it, what what effect it had on on me and kind of going back to to our kind of earlier kind of conversation about the uh, Busan um, and uh, Wall Street kind of connection, right, um, in 2011 during Occupy. I'm also kind of interested in how, like, you know, uh, structural adjustment, like austerity and things like this um, affect my life like today, like every day and kind of all the, all the ways in which, like, I think, you know, like most people's lives feel like pre- quite precarious and unpredictable. So, yeah, I'm kind of like interested in exploring that connection in, in fiction, mm-hmm. you know, kind of through this kind of uh, metaphor or the pun of like structural adjustment.
1: I think it's also important, the word you use, you said imposed. Yeah. And, right, is that, is how I would say it too, and, and the World Bank and the IMF came out of World War II, yeah. the aftermath. And it is an imposition. It's saying, here are loans to help you out, but they come with strings attached Mm -hmm. in what ways we think is best for the economy, which, of course, like these things that you're saying and rise in poverty, rise in unemployment, privatizing education, privatizing healthcare, And you see that in all over the globe with these structural adjustment programs. Mm -hmm. And what you said, too, about how does it infiltrate our lives? Privatization, Mm -hmm. right? Or commodification of everything around us Uh, you know we're in the education system so the privatization of education and I see it starkly with a lot of my friends and other indigo radio hosts that are in the public schools uh, (laughs) that are dealing with a lot and this push to privatize schools so that's something that we talk a lot about but I think that also structural adjustment often one is a term that a lot of people don't know because we're not taught it so it's not our fault two it's sort of like something that happens over there
3: yeah
1: um because these are poor countries but that there is a a connection of course right and who controls that too yeah for the powerful players in in the world the u.s being one of them
2: i mean these techniques are like tested out you know in Chile and uh, in South Korea, like other places, and then they make their way back to the, to the center. Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: mm-hmm. Um, the, one, the other thing I wanted to ask you, um, and I'm hoping that you can introduce this song that I'm gonna play, I think it was reading about the welder that led me to 1980 in South Korea, the Gwangju Uprising. Am I saying that correctly? Gwangju. Gwangju Uprising, yeah. which I also think is important, thinking about students, because it was a student-led and worker-led pro-democracy movement. Yeah, and you had talked about your students and student agency, right? And I and I find in my teaching it's so important to show examples of resistance
3: mm, by um, students.
1: Yeah, yeah, by young people. Yeah. Uh, I think climate change is a huge one. Like a huge one that a lot of there's a lot of youth activism, right? But anyway, I'm wondering if you could just briefly tell us about the Gwangju uprising, and then if you could, well, let's just start there.
2: Yeah, so with, with Gwangju, like, so this is kind of the counterpart to, you know, uh, what the people did, right? Yeah. So in, in, in post-war, in post-war Korea, democracy didn't just happen because the US, like, secured South Korea. Um, it didn't happen, like, automatically. And in fact, South Korea for a very long time, you know, didn't have, um, you know, democratic elections. It was run by uh, military dictatorships, you know, who were, um, you know, quite like brutally violent and disappearing and killing and imprisoning um, labor activists and dissidents, everyday people. Yeah, Gwangju was a a student and worker-led, you know, movement, you know, one of, you know, one of several that kind of was a moment of resistance, like a powerful moment of resistance against kind of those forces of repression. And it was kind of through these like student uh, protests that South Korea did become a democratic Uh, country where it was possible to vote for political leaders and um, other things. So yeah like I think I, I agree that like the role that students you know have had in political movements like across the world I know that my students are quite surprised by that because in the neoliberal university like we think of school and the classroom as like profoundly depoliticized spaces where like there's so much anxiety about like chasing these like micro trends and you know what's what's hot in like three years in tech and things like this but yeah the classroom itself is like this special kind of you know political place it's not the only place but it's kind of you know one particular version of where resistance can happen and in the U.S. context right it was like students who you know advocated for um, the creation of creative not creative but um advocated for the creation of critical race and ethnic ethnicity studies, you know, and that didn't just happen on its own. So I hope to kind of tr- try and kind of get to that in, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the song that we'll be listening to, the Korean title is And you, you told me the English title.
1: Uh, uh, the English title I have is A March of the Beloved. And it then there's also a subtitle, t- subtitle which is the May 18th Democratization Revolution song.
2: Yeah. And and yeah, May 18, yeah, um, that was the date of the Gwangju massacre.
5: I
1: teach Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye.
2: Yeah, that's one of the books that the students can write a preface on. Yeah,
1: Great. And I wanted to ask you that, how do we work with students to grapple hard topics? Because there's a lot of hard topics.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and that's one example, of The Bluest Eye. So I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. And to, and to stick with it. Yeah. What's the importance of, of that?
2: The Bluest Eye was Toni Morrison's debut novel. Um, she wrote it in um, the 1960s. And in a preface that she wrote a couple of decades later, as she was at the height of her amazing um, career, she reflected on kind of the process of writing this book and situated that book kind of during the moment in the 1960s where there were conversations about black beauty and uh, things like this. And yeah, Toni Morrison in that kind of preface says that the work was her way of figuring out parallel questions, right? posed during uh, Black Power and conversations about Black beauty and uh, Black art in a way that was specific to the form of the novel. It's a challenging work in many ways. Like it's kind of formally and structurally like experimental. You know, there isn't clear kind of narrative through line. But another kind of reason it's hard to teach, challenging to teach is it has pre-traumatic rape and incest plot. Yeah, so bringing in like really challenging uh, traumatic material in the classroom. It's something that I'm still, like, figuring out as a teacher. When I was in school, when I was in university, these weren't quite conversations that my teachers were having. So, you know, it's been interesting to think about what, you know, like, how how to, like, you know, frame kind of these, like, really important works, you know, for students so that they kind of get something out of it. And, yeah, so it's been, it's been kind of an interesting um, experiment. You know, one thing that I'll say, though, is that, like, the question about history kind of comes back here, too, because like I, I tell my students, like, if you read Toni Morrison's, you know, preface that she wrote many books after The Bluest Eye, you can see her trying to situate her own work, right, within its political historical movements, and also trying to wrangle with kind of the same um, traumatic um, events of that book. And I hope, right, that the students kind of, you know, come away from that process thinking about some of these topics. Yeah. Mm hmm. Oh, another, another thing is that The Blue, the blue Side, Tony, it's, it's, a, it's just a fascinating book, too, because it's like, on the one hand, it, it signals the start of Toni Morrison's uh, great career, but it's also a novel about, like, comparative racial formation. It's, you know, it tells a story of Lorain, Ohio, which is where Toni Morrison is from, describing mm-hmm. this kind of multi-ethnic community and this industrial kind of steel, steel town. And so much of that novel is kind of about how Piccola. One of the central characters of this book, like fits into the greater system of Lorraine, Ohio, you know, and thinking about um, the relationships between Greek, Italian, I think, Eastern European kind of communities with the black community and also the, the kind of older kind of white uh, community um, in Lorraine. So I think it raises a lot of kind of um, interesting questions that I don't always see uh, raised when I'm teaching Toni Morrison. And so, yeah, that's kind of, it's, it's why that novel's in there and perhaps uh, not another one of 20 Morrison's many amazing works. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think also this question of hard topics in the classroom, uh, I think a lot of teachers grapple with. Yeah. And I think that, I was talking to a student recently and I was saying how we can't change, we cannot change the past and we can't change our individual past either. Mm-hmm. Meaning these instances of suffering yeah. that we've had or collective suffering mm-hmm. or the history of enslavement. Mm-hmm. The qu- The question is, where do we go from here? And I think it's important also is that I know I don't want that. I don't want a world like that mm-hmm. or I don't want a world how it is today. There's mm-hmm. a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there has to be some way that we can engage with these hard things. Yeah. And also with The blue aside, also this incredible work of fiction. Yeah. But that can bring in these questions. And so, it, yeah, I think it is a struggle for teachers right now of, like, keeping the students with it, having them go, go beyond their own suffering yeah. to, to be able to engage in these questions and decide what what we want for this world or, or what's the world that we would rather see and be in. Yeah,
2: know? yeah. I think, it. yeah, that's, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I'll say this, like, uh, you know, on the one hand, if if, if a student just uh, can't read, right, like a book that deals with something specific and traumatic, like incest and rape and things like this, I, I actually am totally fine with that being then my job as a teacher to think of like an alternative that can help that student um, engage with kind of uh, related or kind of uh, similar uh, topics that don't have to have that student uh, read about rape and incest. You know, I think that's totally part of my job. But there's also kind of this other part of the kind of larger conversation about potentially traumatic or triggering works in the literature classroom that's like, I wonder if sometimes that the conversation about reading challenging works Is connected to what we were talking about earlier about students not feeling a sense of agency within the educational system. You know one thing that I think a lot about is kind of making the classroom a place where like intellectual struggle can happen. Uh, Intellectual and emotional you know struggle and challenges can occur and that's part of the learning process. I think that struggling through something is kind of really important. I'm not saying that you know if you've experienced this or you know if if you just can't read something um, that deals with this issue. I think it's totally my job to make sure that you can do something else and that I don't force you to read it. But um, for other people, I think that dealing with like really challenging kind of things and struggling with it can be part of kind of learning process. And I think of my job as kind of being able to convince the students that that struggle is part of who they'll become as, you know, not just like an employee at a specific company or whatever, or a freelancer, but like who they are as like, you know, political and like artistic and like creative people. And I think that's like the really big picture question that I'm trying to think about right now in in, in this particular phase of my uh, career teaching. Yeah.
1: I love that a lot, what you just said. Thank you for that. I think it is true. And how you connected that to our prior conversation of, yeah, our students are active beings. And to hook them into that, right, is essential, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of us uh, as Indigo and Spark faculty try and do that, too. Jeff, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you you want to add?
2: No. I mean, thank you so much for having me here. This is uh, such a wide-ranging, interesting conversation.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. It was an honor to talk to you, and I look forward to your novel. Do we know when it's coming out?
2: Uh, not yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I hope I hope soon. Yeah. Okay,
1: great. Well, thank you for uh, sitting with us today, being a part of Indigo Radio. Thanks, Emma.
0: 빵을 먹고 빵을 남겼어. 남긴 빵을 그려보았어. 그린 빵을 보고 앉아서 이것밖에 없어. 오늘 본것 중에 가장 좋은 것이 좋다고 말할 만한 것